While I was going through university, I was a part-time music teacher. I was young, inexperienced, generally clueless about most things, and my naivety was exposed when I handed in my first set of draft student reports that prompted a meeting with my director and a rewrite of said reports, not because of spelling errors or crimes against grammar, uh, but because my comments about one student were going to hurt their feelings. More importantly, they were going to irritate the fee-paying parents, so you you see the problem. Now, I'm all in favour of creating a a positive learning environment, but at some point, we all hit the brick wall of reality, don't we? And we see the same pattern in the workplace. Those of you who manage staff will know how delicate you need to be with your words, particularly when it comes to underperformers, because the threat of a bullying accusation is just one short email away. By contrast, the biblical writers, um, when it comes to our moral performance, they're not burdened by our modern sensitivities. Instead of sugarcoating reality to protect our fragile self-esteem, what we've heard so far in the book of Romans has been a confronting, uncompromising, unrelenting and frankly pretty uncomfortable but necessary assessment of our character. I'll grant you it's not much, but one piece of good news today, Ken highlighted it, is that today we've reached the end of the bad news. We've come to the final closing arguments against us. The charge is repeated, the evidence summarised, the verdict handed down. In the face of undeniable evidence, we, the defendants, are completely helpless. There's no option of appeal By our willful disobedience and staggering ingratitude, we are all guilty of offending our loving Heavenly Father. And he is legitimately angry. That being so, my task today is to convince you that our only hope is to throw ourselves on the mercy of the judge. That's been the goal of this long section from chapter 1, verse 18, through to where we are today. I reckon today is the day to enter an early guilty plea. Because if we're prepared to accept the verdict, we place ourselves in the hands of the judge, and the judge is uniquely qualified to offer mercy. If you've got your news sheet there, you can see that I've got a sermon outline. Point number one, the charge is repeated. Look at verse nine with me. What shall we conclude then? This is it. This is the final closing arguments. Do we, speaking to the Jewish Christians in Rome, do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody, you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile, this is everyone, we all are alike under the power of sin. It's as if Paul speaks about sin as a person. And that's consistent with how Jesus spoke. John chapter 8, Jesus says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And that's what Paul's getting at here. We are all under sin, ruled by sin. Not that we're victims, mind you. It's very popular to claim victim status in our cultural moment, but when it comes to being under sin, we are not victims. 
We might be victims of other people who sin against us, that's true, but that we are under sin is the direct result of our rebellion. In our desire to be free from God, we've followed our ancestors and we've elected to be under sin. We may not have weighed the consequences very well, but we knew well enough what we were doing. We heard that back in chapter 1. Furthermore, just as they, that's us, did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, that was our assessment, that was our calculation. It was better to embrace sin. So what did God do? He gave us over to a depraved mind. And now here in chapter 3, for the benefit of the courtroom, Paul traces the inevitable result of our decision. Verse 9, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin, ruled by sin. We are compulsive sinners in the same way that you might be a compulsive drinker, a compulsive gambler, a compulsive liar. Even with the strongest will in the world, our day can unravel even before morning tea. Now, it's important to realise what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. To be under the power of sin does not mean all of us are psychopaths. Some of us will be, but not all. Or to put that another way, we are not as depraved as we could be. What's more, to say that everybody is under sin does not mean that people are unable to do good. That would be a silly thing to say. Of course people can do good. People of all faiths and none are capable of significant good. And Paul acknowledged that back in chapter 2. Even people who don't have the Jewish law are capable of doing the law even if they don't know it. Serial killer Ted Bundy, he worked on a suicide prevention hotline. Saddam Hussein, he made primary school education free before leading the genocide of over two million people in Cambodia. Pol Pot was an admired university professor. Libya's Colonel Gaddafi, despite all of his human rights abuses, he instituted free health care. Which means both wicked and, so to say, less wicked people are able to do good. But being under sin means every aspect of our life is somehow affected and distorted. Paul will go on to say in chapter 7, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. This is the charge. We're all under the power of sin. But it will surprise no one to hear that people try and brush this off. Well, that's just Paul's opinion. Well, he saw that coming a long time ago. He says, all right, if you're not going to take my word for it, then be my guest. But then in verses 10 to 12, we get a string of evidence laid before us from across the Old Testament. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and for some variety, a little bit of Ecclesiastes. As it's written. In other words, don't take it from me. There is no one righteous, not even one. Now, do you remember to be righteous is to live according to God's law? To be righteous means you are in right standing with God? 
But Paul's already made the case, we don't live this way, so there is no one righteous. What about verse 11? There is no one who understands. Well, back in chapter 1, we learned that God's eternal power and his supreme knowledge, well, we can know that by what's been made. We can look at creation and we can see, well, there is a God and we ought to seek him. But, well, having suppressed this knowledge, God gives us over to a depraved mind. Our thinking becomes futile. We lack understanding. There is no one who seeks God. Oh, chapter 1, verse 23, we prefer to exchange the truth about God for what? Well, for false gods. I could keep going back through the evidence, but this is the closing arguments, remember? And so we come to verse 12. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does, does good, not even one. Where does that leave us? Well, there's the repeated theme. It's hard to miss. No one, not even one, no one, no one, all together. No one, not even one. I'm not seeing any wiggle room. Sin is widespread. That's the charge. How about some evidence? If you look closely, verses 13 to 18, Paul draws an image of the body. Verse 13, we see throats, tongues and lips. Verse 14, we see mouths, verse 15, feet, eyes, verse 18. And in combination, what we have is a portrait of the human heart. Jesus says as much in Matthew 15, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. For out of the heart, says Jesus, come evil thoughts. And then he gives a long list. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, and so on. Sins of speech. In the summary of evidence mounted against us here, Paul's quoting from Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10. And he highlights what? Throats, tongues, lips, and mouths. Think how easily we take down someone's character. Oh, did you hear about this? Oh, I'm only telling you so you can pray about it, of course. Sins of speech, sins of violence. This time quoting from Isaiah 59, their feet are swift to shed blood. Verse 16, ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. Now, if your reaction to this is anything like mine, you'll be saying, hang on, I haven't murdered anybody. But as Jesus pointed out in his Sermon on the Mount, you don't have to kill someone to be a murderer. You've heard that it was said, Jesus, you shall not murder, he goes on. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to just to judgment. Sins of speech, sins of violence, and finally, the sin of arrogant foolishness. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Let's make this practical for a minute. So I talked about a stadium of 100,000 people. Next time you're at the SCG... I was at the theatre the other week and this occurred to me. Maybe you're at a school assembly, maybe you're in a packed restaurant. I want you to look around at all of the faces. People laughing, carrying on, having a good time. Most of them will be under the wrath of God and they have no fear of the danger they face. Last year, Queensland police ran a statewide campaign targeting caravan safety. 
You mightn't drive a caravan, but here's why you should care. 90%, that's a lot, 90% of the travellers they stopped were overweight. Not the travellers, but their caravans. It's not illegal yet to be overweight. 90% of these caravans were overweight. And do you know what really troubled the police? Most of those they stopped either didn't know or didn't care about the danger they faced. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's as if sin acts like a kind of cosmic anaesthetic. We become numb. Sin is widespread. We are without excuse. And so the verdict is reached. No one will be declared righteous. You might be asking yourself, this long section, we've been doing four weeks of this now, chapter 1, verse 18 through to today, what's the practical outcome that this long section is driving us towards? Well, having been convicted without possibility of appeal, what can we do? Verse 19, it's time that we closed our mouths. Now, we know that whatever the law says, be it the Jewish law or any other moral code, it says to those who are under the law, so that, here's the result, every mouth may be silenced, because you might have the law, but you don't keep it, and the whole world held accountable to God. A few weeks ago, if you were with us, you might remember that as a preview to our series in the book of Romans, we looked at Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember that? It's a fictional story, but it's not hard to imagine. Two people go into the temple to pray. The proud Pharisee, do you remember his prayer? God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, the tax collector prays. Well, first we get information about how he prays. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's a man who understands Romans 3. There's no one righteous. My guess is that the last four weeks have been hard listening. Each time we've met, there's been a new charge levelled against us and we've had to nod in agreement. Yeah, that's true. It's been hard listening. I can assure you it's been hard to preach. I'm looking forward to some relief. We could have skipped this whole section and jumped to the good news. That would have had the benefit of being efficient and it would have had the added benefit of enabling people to feel good. But when God's people are force-fed nothing but endless positivity, you breed a shallow community of malnourished and spiritually stunted disciples. That would be negligent. As unpleasant as it is, if we're going to rejoice rightly in God's mercy, we must first face up to what it is from which we've been saved. And the sobering reality of this long section is that we must be saved from God himself. Do you remember chapter 1 verse 18? 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. That's us who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's us. Or at least it was. Because next week, for those humble enough to plead for his mercy, we'll find that God's wrath gives way to grace. But not because the judge has changed his mind. We must understand this. He hasn't changed his mind. The judge has made a way. The Son of God, whose blood turns aside the wrath of God, that we might become the forgiven children of God. I'm so ready to hear that. Long before Romans 3 was written, the prophet Micah had a tough job of preaching repentance to the nation of Israel. They didn't want to hear it, and I suspect he got sick of preaching it. But towards the end, in chapter 7, he wonders out loud, who is a God like you who pardons sin? You don't stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. The charge has been made against us. The evidence is incontrovertible. The verdict has been handed down. We are guilty on all charges. Now is the time before the sentence is handed down to enter the guilty plea. Do it early and throw yourself on the mercy of the judge the one uniquely qualified to offer mercy. I'm ready for some good news. I suspect you are too. We'll get it next week. But first we've got to face up to what it is from which we are being saved. Throw yourself on the mercy of the judge. Let me pray. The Apostle John writes, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So Father, we do pause and give you thanks for your patience towards us. And we thank you all the more that you make a way through your son that we might find forgiveness the promise of eternal life and rich welcome into your kingdom. For these blessings we give you thanks through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.